This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author Christina Thompson. Christina joined me to talk about her book, Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia. She explores the quest to understand who first settled the islands of the remote Pacific, where they came from and how they got there. Now I welcome Christina who joins me over... Skype from America, I believe, somewhere just outside of Boston. Hi there, Christina. Hey, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Well, you know, (laughs) know, time of the pandemic and all. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As best as you can. Right. And um, just before we get into your book, which is um, fascinating, and I'm sure it's going to transport us to another place, which is what we need, I think, right now um, in this pandemic, as well as obviously being across things and making sure we're taking the right decisions. Um, But from your perspective, it's been interesting watching what's been happening over in America and um, even seeing Harvard University uh, close its physical campus uh, over a week ago and um, they had their first case and almost immediately after that closed down the campus. How has your experience been? And I'm aware that you're editor of the Harvard Review over there as well. Right. So we started working remotely um, last week. Uh, My colleague and I went in on a day Uh, the Monday of last week after everybody had already left and made our way. We couldn't get into our building, so we had to go through the tunnels underneath the buildings in order to go from Widener Library to Lamont, where our office is, to pick up a few things. And it was spooky and strange because the building was empty and it was dark and, uh, (laughs) you know, it was just really weird. But so it's, I mean, I, I applaud Harvard and the other universities like Stanford and Princeton and many other universities that made an early decision to, um, to send everybody home. Yes, and and, uh, to get everybody working, all the staff to get them working from home. So that was really good. It is good. And it's important to, as many of the health um, professionals have said, be ahead of the curve because it should look like uh, you're being extra cautious and in some cases an overreaction if you are, are doing the right thing in a pandemic. Absolutely. Absolutely. The universities have been ahead of the curve mostly. Um, and, you know, we're just sort of watching everybody else kind of wrap their heads around it now. Yeah, and um, certainly from our perspective, we're seeing Donald Trump give his uh, daily press conferences, and that is another disturbing subject that I won't draw you into because I know it might be a little bit um, distressing for any American having to go through that a second time. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Christina, um, I'm aware that you have uh, dual citizenship of Australia and America, and you also have a a personal connection to this topic that is your book and Polynesia and the people who make up um, the Polynesian islands. And uh, it certainly is a very vast area that we're looking at um, in the global sense, in a geographic sense. Uh, Could you share with us, first of all, what that personal connection is and how that moved you to um, look at this in greater depth? Sure. Um, So I'm married to um, um, a man from New Zealand. He is Maori and um, he is from, uh, he is a member of the Ngāpuhi tribe, Ngātirehi Hapu. And he's from the north of New Zealand, and I met him a really long time ago. We've been married for 30 years, I think, <clears throat> and uh, we have three children. And um, my, wrote a, my first book was really about trying to 
you know, to understand what a cross-cultural marriage was like, and also to see that in the context of the historical relationship between our two peoples. And so that's the contact history, really, of New Zealand and the colonial history of New Zealand. And so that's been a longstanding interest of mine. Um, you know, when I was in Australia, that was what I was really working on and what I was interested in. And I've continued to work on it, even though I live really, really far away from the Pacific, and I have for the last 20 years. And so, you know, I don't, I often feel like I'm not getting much traction in America because on my side of the country, anyway, people don't really, you know, they just don't really get it. They don't really know what's out there. <laughs> um, but, but it is really important to me. It's really been my life's work, basically, to try and understand um, what Polynesia is, the history of Polynesia, what the cultural, what the relationships are between, you know, Pakeha and Maori and so forth. And yeah. that's a really great um, introduction. And no oh. doubt that your personal connection um, would be, I guess, facilitating on a daily basis, a kind of co cross-cultural exchange and you, I guess, feeling potentially part of the, the Polynesian culture in a way? Sort of. I mean, I feel like an outsider. I mean, I am very definitely an outsider in Polynesia. I actually wrote a piece about this not too long ago. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm coughing. I do not have uh, the virus, <laughs> but I'm just have a little frog in my throat. I wrote a piece recently that was about, you know, when we go to Polynesia, I, tr I sort of stay behind my husband because, you know, he's very identifiably Polynesian and wherever he goes, everybody recognizes him as a Polynesian, although in Tahiti, they think he's Tahitian and in Tonga, they think he's Tongan. And, you know, like people can't tell exactly where he's from until he opens his mouth. Um, but uh, I, you know, travel with him by staying, by kind of walking behind him because he is the ambassador, you know, and I just sort of observe what's going on. But he's he's been a huge part of my... I don't know, I guess partly my research, <laughs> but also just my, you know, just helping me understand different kinds of things. And he tells me stuff all the time. That's really great. That does sound like it's particularly helpful and fantastic when you're going traveling in these areas. And the beginning of your book uh, does share one of those stories where you talk about um, your husband really being one of those icebreakers, I guess. And when people see him, um, they're saying things like, hey, brother, how's it going? Uh, hey, brother, where are you from? Hey, brother, do you need something? And the um, amazing generosity that uh, exists for people and from people in Polynesia with each other and um, some of the lovely things that people offered to you and provided you with when you were on your travels in Hawaii. Yeah, in Hawaii and in Tonga, um, in in all kinds of places. I mean, people were incredibly generous to us. We had only the most uh, tenuous of connections with pe with various people. We would know one in one case, it was my niece's colleague's cousin or something like that. I mean, it was really remote, and I had never even met the woman who was the connection. And this guy met us at the airport in Tonga. He loaned us his car. I mean, it, you know, it was just spectacular, just kind of really amazing warmth and generosity and a feeling of, of, I mean, it's really for me, what I felt about it was there's a feeling of kinship. Mm -hmm. I could sort of perceive that feeling of kinship. And that was the thing that was sort of underlying my, my inquiry into this, this sense that these people um, on all these islands are related and pretty darn closely, you know, it just wasn't that long ago in terms of um, human history when they sort of made it out into the Pacific and when they split apart group to group. So it was, uh, yeah. Indeed. And you highlight the fact that um, obviously this is a massive uh, geographic 
area and expanse. Um, and it is, uh, you know, obviously these tiny little islands, some of which are so small that they wouldn't be um, observable on a two-scale map. Uh, and the, I guess, wondrous idea and um, circumstance that Polynesians found themselves in, that they were um, so fantastically mobile and able to colonise and uh, settle in every habitable island in such a huge expanse. Um, in terms of that uh, element in the story, I mean, we'll get to how and why that happened, but um, what kind of, what did that mean for you when you've kind of understood, I guess, the, the geographic size and the um, expanse that is the Polynesian Triangle? And maybe for those who are listening, you could share with us what that does encompass. Right, exactly. So the Polynesian Triangle is the triangle that the, the, the north northernmost point is Hawaii, and then New Zealand in the sort of bottom left-hand corner, if you were looking at a map, and then Easter Island in the bottom right. So it's a big triangle. It's right in the middle of the Pacific. Tahiti is pretty much the center point. Um, it's 10 million square miles. And, um, you know, my, my sort of way of making this real was to think about, well, if you got on an airplane and you flew from Hawaii to New Zealand, it would be nine hours. And then it would be nine hours from New Zealand to Easter Island and nine hours from Easter Island back to Hawaii. I mean, it's just a huge, huge, huge area. And there's really nothing in it except water and some islands, not very many islands inside there. So it's just an enormous area. Um, and what was the other thing you wanted to ask me? I think that's that's the main point at this point. Let's um, go into some of the Polynesian islands uh, and also how, I guess, these people, the Polynesian people, managed to settle in an inner sea, um, in, in islands within a sea, the Pacific Ocean, that was particularly uh, tumultuous in terms of the weather, uh, the wind, the waves, and it was so, I guess, inhospitable that uh, Europeans did did not um, become the first to to find and settle these islands. It was the Polynesians. Why and how did that happen? Well, I'm not sure that it was because it was so inhospitable. The, uh, Europeans didn't know the Pacific was there until the beginning of the 16th century. Like they just didn't know it was there. Um, they had once they had to cross the Atlantic first, basically, um, or you know they'd have had to go the other way. So which they might have recognized that there was something, you know. East, of, you know, east of China, but basically the understanding comes when they go across the Atlantic to the Americas, and then they go across the Americas, and they recognize that there's water on the other side. So, you know, it's Magellan who who is the first to sail across in the early 1500s, and you know there are all kinds of difficulties. The principal difficulty is not the sort of tempestuousness of it. All the getting around the Horn is really hard, but the real problem is just distance. You know, it's like the tyranny of distance, right? It's the classic Australian thing. It is just so big and it is so far away from everything. So you get out into the middle of it and there's just you're just very, very far away from anything. So um, Europeans had a particularly hard time uh, navigating it. They didn't they took they took hundreds of years to understand how big it was, how, how where the islands were in it, how to cross against the um you know, it, it, there were only certain pathways that they could take given because of the winds and so on. So it really was a remarkable 
you know, just a, just just a remarkable thing to be able to navigate in this really enormous space. So that's a big piece of it. And then, you know, the other thing that kind of amazed Europeans was that Polynesians had done this without many of the technologies that we had. For example, they didn't have writing. So they didn't have charts. They didn't have maps. They didn't have directions that were written. They were all oral. They had them in their heads. They didn't have any metal. They didn't have compasses. You know, they didn't have a lot of the tools that we used when we went across. So so then the question is sort of how did they do it? And that was just, you know, that's been a long, long question, <laughs> a <Yes>. difficult question. <laughs> and you talk about uh, Magellan's trips and voyages uh, across the Pacific, and um, they did sound, you know, pretty dramatic at times. And uh, the fact that there was obviously a lot of wind, but also that uh, because it was such a long vo voyage and, as you say, a large expanse to cover, um, that most of the uh, crew and the ships did not uh, end up making the return. And it was obviously a, a hugely risky thing to actually um, take on. Yeah, I think it was risky for everybody. I think um, I think it was probably risky for Polynesian navigators. You know, it's a big ocean. It can be very rough. Um, it can be difficult. And, you know, there are storms. It's it's um, there are certain seasons for voyaging. If you were a Polynesian, you probably would not have voyaged during certain seasons. That was also to some extent true of the Europeans. Um, you know, they wouldn't try to round the horn in the winter, for example, uh, southern hemispheric winter. Um so yeah, there are all kinds of uh, of, of sort of difficulties, um, and a lot of the early Europeans, uh, you know, navigators who went across had difficulty in various different ways. They they ran aground, they ran out of food, they they had encounters with people who lived on the islands. Sometimes people died, you know. It was it was rugged. <laughs> There's no question about that, and it went on for hundreds of years. You know, this kind of trying to figure out what was out there. Um, yeah. Indeed. And you do recount um, through some of the Europeans who had written uh, diary entries and had taken notes of their trip, um, some of the first encounters between uh, Magellan and the Polynesians. And there was one example um, around uh, the fact that a whole group of um, Polynesians having about three to ten people in each canoe had um, gone out in their canoes to the ship that the Europeans had. And there was obviously, um, there initially seemed quite friendly, but then it turned to uh, not be so friendly. Yeah, that, that wouldn't have been Magellan because he never really encountered any Polynesians and he's just the first. But many of the subsequent voyagers, especially, or the navigators, the, the, the you know, the British uh, or the British and the French in particular in the 18th century, they had all kinds of encounters with Polynesian people and then also with other people further in the islands to the west that were, were very fraught. I mean, um, there are all, I mean, they're very complicated. They're not just, they're not, they were tense and sometimes they were violent and then sometimes they would flip quite quickly and go from being uh, sort of tense and violent to being uh, tense and sort of maybe more productive where there'd be trade and people would exchange food and uh, bits of fabric and maybe tools and I don't know, different kinds of things. So those early interactions are very, they're very, they're, I'm, I've been fascinated by them for years because we have very little in the way of, we have these records of them that are sort of sparse in a way. They don't tell you everything you want to know about them. There's just a lot, you know, you wish you could really go back and see. But those those interactions were very interesting. You had two people very different from one another encountering each other, sometimes for the first time or, you know, 
maybe the second time or third. And, and, and those are just really, really interesting events mm. for me. I'm thinking in particular of the 1595 episode where um, the Spaniard Mendaña uh, met the Marqueses and had that uh, little, I guess, discussion at the beginning, but then there was um, some tension and also shots fired and uh, Polynesians were shot um, and and obviously that did create some tension. And, and of course, it's interesting that there is, uh, as you you've highlighted a bias in the sense that we are reliant in many regards on uh, a European perspective and a European lens um, as opposed to the Polynesians. From your perspective when you were researching this, how did you balance and manage that challenge? And obviously from an Australian perspective, we're um, fortunate to have a great uh, rich oral tradition with our um, Aboriginal First Peoples. Uh, Was there a similar uh, rich oral tradition uh, with many Polynesians? Yes, there is. And it's very interesting that um, it is um, quite well documented in a number of different places. It's very well documented in New Zealand. It's well documented in Hawaii. It's pretty well documented in, um, in, in it's remembered probably better in some of the other parts in the Western Polynesia where there's been a little bit less colonial interference or maybe a little bit, I don't know, maybe that's not quite fair, but you know, um, there, there's definitely a lot of oral tradition. It's, um, I write about the oral traditions quite a lot in the book because I found them really fascinating in part because again, you know, um, they're sort of complicated because if you think about it, so how does it work? You have these, these say these myths or these legends or so forth that are written down probably in the beginning of the 19th century or sometime in the 19th century by a missionary, usually sometimes by a colonial official, who, you know, keeps things, you know, leaves some things out and is very interested in certain things. So they kind of warping the shape of it as they write it down. Sometimes they document it in the original language. Sometimes they don't. In any case, they do a translation, which may or may not be really accurate, you know, and then the things get re- get printed for the for sort of a readership back in England and they reshape them again. And so, you know, there's just like layer after layer after layer of kind of alteration to these stories. And yet there's all this other stuff in them, which goes back, you know, in a sense, thousands of years, the way an oral tradition can, um, certainly hundreds of years. And um, so, yeah, so they're very layered. They're very complicated. They're very fascinating. Um I have huge piles in my office of books of of these, you know, sort of uh, transcriptions, you know, of these tales. And they're not even tales sometimes. They're just fragments. And I find them very mysterious and wonderful. So I, I, I worked with them a lot. I tried a lot to think a lot about what they could tell me and also what they couldn't tell me, um, trying not to be too kind of naive about what was coming through in those stories. I think sometimes people are a little um, simple in the way that they think about what's there. Indeed. Um, and let's uh, touch on New Zealand which um, and Easter Island, which you write about in one of your chapters. I know it's certainly of interest to many of us in Australia, given our um, closeness to New Zealand, but also uh, given that you've said your uh, husband is Maori, it must have also been particularly pertinent uh, for your own family. Yeah, the New Zealand part. I mean, I had I sort of knew more about New Zealand's history um, than I did about some other parts of the Pacific. I'd spent more time there. Um, so, yeah. So, so the New Zealand piece of the story is pretty, I suppose, it's, New Zealand figures fairly prominently. 
it's also the last of the Polynesian um, uh, clusters, you know, island groups to have been settled. So it's kind of an interesting case because it's it's really recent. I mean, you know, maybe 800 years or 900 years ago, something like that. That the people, the, and nobody had ever been there until until the the, the Maori arrived. So it's just an amazing kind of you know, piece of history. And Easter Island is, of course, everybody's, you know, everybody knows how the Easter Island is fantastically interesting. Um, you know, it's funny to think I was, but I was going to be, I should have been leaving for Easter Island on this coming Saturday. Um, obviously I'm not going, (laughs) 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 which is really too bad. Yeah, but but, yeah. Well, but, but Easter Island is 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 also really fascinating because it's incredibly isolated and it's also really small and does very you know resource poor. So it's a hard place to live. I mean, I think one of the things that people kind of don't get sometimes they think, oh, you know, Polynesia, like they think about Tahiti or something or, or Hawaii, palm trees, white beaches, you know, mountains. But a lot of islands are difficult to live on They're They're ecologically kind of difficult. They're deprived in many ways. They don't have very they might not have very rich soils. If you're on an atoll, you have no soil at all. No land animals. You know, they're tough places to live. And yet that was the other thing that's amazing to me about Polynesian expansion is that they they managed to occupy, to colonize these really challenging environments and to sort of successfully master them, which I think is kind of fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, And it's interesting how you've written that some of them are formed and that, as you said, um, I guess the foundations, the the land mass does, it is made of different materials and it is formed in different ways, including um, many people would be aware of things like uh, volcanoes and volcanic eruptions being part of the landscape in these, or many of these islands. Right. There haven't been any active volcanoes in this part of the Pacific for, you know, I don't know, millions of years, I think. So there haven't, well, Hawaii, I mean, with the obvious exception of Hawaii. Um, But, but the, the, the basic islands, uh, again, the basic idea is that you have a hot spot and you have some, you have a series, a uh, little chain of, of volcanic islands with little mountains, you know, and then around them a reef. And some, and then as the island subsides and the mountain wears down, the coral reef can become just the island itself. So that's what an atoll is. And the whole Tuamotu archipelago, which is lies just east of Tahiti, is in fact all coral like that. And those are, those are challenging. And and there are some other interesting differences. New Zealand is, again, quite different because it's continental and it's huge by comparison and it's cold. And then, you know, you get down to the Chatham Islands and they're just cold, cold, cold by comparison to these other places. So that's another thing that's amazing is you have basically this one cultural group which expands across both this enormous region and into a whole series of different kind of environments, um, warmer, colder, you know, more or less uh, rich more or less ecologically sort of diverse. So again, kind of another cool dimension to the story. Yeah, and by continental, um, we should maybe mention that because it is a really fascinating part of the very ancient history, which is the southern supercontinent of Gondwana, which also included Africa, South America, Antarctica, and Australia, as well as the Indian subcontinent. So this is um, something which... In New Zealand, as you said, is continental. It was part of this massive um, supercontinent of Gondwana. And then, of course, uh, it subsequently broke up. 
Right, right. And and so as a consequence of having been part of, uh, you know, old Gondwana, it has certain kinds of plants, for example, um, and that, that you wouldn't find on other on the islands, the, the, the volcanic islands, which are much more recent and also only have what could kind of fly there, you know, either a bird could bring it as the seeds in its gut or the stuff could blow there or whatever. But I mean, it, it takes a long time for those volcanic islands to develop the kind of flora, a kind of d- diverse flora, which, which, which New Zealand already had this, like Australia, this very interesting um, Gondwanan, you know, stuff, plants, animals, whatever. Absolutely. Um, So in terms of, I guess, the the way that you approached this book, um, I found it really interesting that there were were so many stories interwoven through it and it wasn't um, necessarily a a typical nonfiction book in the sense that it was laden with kind of dry facts. It was certainly quite literary and it was taking people um, on a, a bit of a narrative journey and to understand not just the natural elements, of course, but as the title alludes to the people of Polynesia. Um, In terms of that approach that you've taken with this book, what do you think um, some of the benefits have been when putting together such a unique story such as uh, the people of Polynesia and what they um, did? Well, I think that, um, you know, for people who have liked the book, that the, the, the part of what they have really liked, I think, is that it covers all of this kind of crazy stuff. I used to go around saying to people, you know, jokingly, let me tell you about the, you know, coral atoll formation. You know, let me tell you about, <laughs> let me tell you about this, this crazy Swede who went to Hawaii in the 1840s and passed, you know, cross paths with Herman Melville. Like, it's just got all of this stuff in it. And the miracle, I think, is that I could that I, that I, that I did find a way to organize it so that it was, you know, it would, it didn't, doesn't seem like a random assortment of just weird, weird stories, you know, because really the way that I organized it was in terms of, it's very simple or it's organized very simply chronologically in terms of the question, you know, when somebody who from outside the Pacific first asks the question, who are these people? Because, you know, when, when the, when the Europeans arrive, the islands are all populated and the Europeans get there and they go, who are these people? And so that's the question. And then if you try to look at the answers to the questions, sort of sequentially starting, you know, starting in the 16th century and working your way up to the 19th century into the 20th century. And it turned out to not exactly to my surprise, but I hadn't foreseen this, that if you follow the question chronologically like that, what ends up happening is that you see that different bodies of knowledge, which are available at that moment in history are brought to bear upon the question. So for example, in the 19th century, you get linguistics because people are kind of figuring linguistics out. And so they bring linguistics to bear on the question. If you get into the 20th century, you have archaeology because you radiocarbon dating is developed, you know, invented or discovered or whatever it is. And then you have, you bring that to bear on the question. So you know, it just organized itself as it turned out. <laughs> I just told all the stories along the way, all the people who'd had ideas about it, all of their attempts to understand the question, all of their, and, and just used the, looked at the different tools that they used. And mm-hmm. it turned out that there were a lot of different tools. Indeed, yeah. Um, Maybe we could touch on one of the fascinating and kind of really critical elements of the Polynesians and their ability to to settle on these islands was their um, their expertise in navigation that was different from the Europeans and their approach um, obviously being uh, having to be innovative and and not informed by a, a European approach. 
Right. So this was obviously a piece of the puzzle, and nobody really paid too much attention to it until the end of the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century, when a couple of anthropologists, well, an anthropologist and then a sailor, started thinking about how you might try and answer the question, how did they do it? How did they do it? Not when, not where did they come from, not who were they, you know, who, not who were they closely related to, but but how. And so the how, you know, the, the way that they approached the how was there's no way to go back and find, there's no evidence of that going back. Um, you can't, there's no documentation of that anywhere. So they decided that they would try and reenact the voyages. Various different people have had this idea. I mean, one of the very famous ones, of course, was Tor Heyerdahl, who set off on a raft from the coast of South America and drifted into the Tuamotus. That was the Contiki expedition, very famous. Anybody who's over a certain age knows that very, very well. Um, so that was one of them. But then there was a whole series of experimental voyages uh, from Hawaii, from the Polynesian Voyaging Society in the 1970s. And then since then, there have been a lot more. So that's a really big um, – that was just people trying to figure out how this was done. And so well, how was it done? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's, our best, what's our best understanding at the moment? Okay, so our best understanding is that there is a set of uh, what you might call – tools or techniques. And one of them involves star, star navigation. So you understand um, the sky very well for the region in which you're going to be traveling, and you understand which stars will rise at which points on the horizon. If you think of, this, if you think of the horizon as a flat circle around you, like a compass or whatever, then certain stars will reliably rise at a certain point on that, on that compass and then set on the opposite side. And so you you know, you, you understand which stars those are going to be. Then you set a path knowing the path will be when this star A rises and then following that star B will rise in that same place. And then star C will rise in that place through the course of the night. So you follow that and that's your compass. Then you understand there's a lot of land finding, um, techniques which involve understanding kind of what the what what does the sky what does what do the clouds look like in the in proximity to land what do birds do in proximity to land how are wave um, refraction patterns altered by the presence of land and so on and so forth there's a lot of sophisticated knowledge there and then there are some other things too so there are sort of a, a bunch of techniques and tools um, some of which have been kind of reinvented some of which have been passed down from some micronesian navigators um, and some of which are still kind of mysterious. They're documented as having been used, but some people don't really know how they are, how they worked. Yes, and some of the, I guess, tools or methodologies within this star law, as in L-O-R-E, um, which you describe as being the foundation of non-instrumental navigation, are um, really important and some of, I guess, the main guiding tools or rules or frameworks that uh, the Polynesians were using, um, looking at star paths connecting one island to another, and uh, you highlight that about 10 stars a night were required at minimum to maintain a constant heading, although sometimes as few as five could be used. I mean, there are some of those examples that you provide which are quite awe-inspiring to think that um, there was just such uh, amazing innovation and creativity and a whole other way of doing things. I think, too, the way you have to think about this, you have to think about this, too, is that so so Mao Piailug, who was the master navigator from... Um, from Satawal, who taught the Polynesian navigators, the, the Hawaiian navigators in the 1970s. He had been raised 
on the sea, you know, to think about it, to think about the sea this way from the time that he was a very tiny child and he had been taught and he had practiced and so forth. And he could do things that other people couldn't really didn't, even the people he trained weren't really able to do. He, he could feel swell patterns, very complicated swell patterns on from the deck of a canoe, which was just a kind of, it was basically experience. Experience had taught him how to do it. And the same thing with the sky. You know, you have to think about somebody spending their whole life, you know, thinking about this, studying about this, practicing this, and their connection to what their, their knowledge, their understanding of what the sky will look like, what the weather you know, patterns are going to be like, what the stars are going to do, what the wind is going to do, what the clouds are going to do, what the birds are going to do. You know, it's like that just being really in it in a way that is different from, you know, going to school and learning about, you know, how to make, how to do the tables, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for lunars and stuff like that. I mean, it's just a really, I'm not sure that one wants to be, you know, particularly say one is good and one is bad or anything like that. That's not really it or better or worse. It's not really like that. It's just like really different um, in terms of the the, what it takes and to to do it and, and how you learn it, I think. Yes, it's that close connection with nature and a long observation, a careful observation and understanding of of the land that you're living in. And um, you do, you just mentioned their birds, and I was interested in that and the fact that birds were, um, you quote in the book, a navigator's best friend. How were birds utilised? So birds will do... Um most of the birds on islands will go out to fish in the morning and come back to roost at night. I mean, not all of them. Some of them will stay out at sea for a long time. So you have to know which birds you're looking at. But for certain birds, certain birds are very good. Um, uh, they're very good hallmarks or whatever you, you could, if you, if it's, if it's, if it's getting on for sunset and you see the birds you're and you're close enough to an Island, but you can't see the Island, but you see these birds, they could be 30 or 40 miles out. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of disagreement about how far out they'll go. Um, but, and, and they're not, you know, they're not perfect. They, they'll do, they do some weird things sometimes, but basically they'll, you could see the birds heading back to the Island and you would know that there, at a certain time of day, you would know that there was an Island there. So the people who are really good at this, you know, it would be hard to do if you were just a novice, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but, um, and there's a story in the book about Nainoa Thompson, who's the, the Hawaiian, uh, navigator, the first Hawaiian navigator really. And, and how he makes a mistake with the birds because he doesn't really get it. He doesn't really know. And uh, Mao has to correct him. It's a story <laughs> I love. But... <laughs> well, maybe you could tell us that story. It sounds really fascinating. Well, it's sort of complicated. I mean, basically what it is, is that he, that they're, they're making the trip in the Hokulea, which is the the canoe, the replica canoe that they built, and they 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 launched it in 1976 for the bicentennial year, the United States bicentennial year, and they were going to go to Hawaii and back. And it wasn't on the first voyage, but on a, on on some subsequent voyages when Nainoa was actually being trained as or doing the navigation himself, and he was just coming into the Tuamotu, was just about to reach the the end of this long, you know, many day twenty three week voyage, I think. And he was very anxious about it, and he thought that um, he saw the birds. Let's see how, how does this work. So he saw the birds coming out uh, at a certain time, and he thought that based on the direction the bird was going, that they had passed the island. They had overshot the mark, and so they needed to turn around. So he tells everybody, "Turn the canoe around. Turn the canoe around." And Mao, who had never interfered, who was his master teacher, had never interfered with him. He interfered at that moment. He said, "No, no." 
turn the canoe around. You're going the wrong way now. And they turned around and it turned out that what happened was that the bird, it was nesting season and the bird had gone out twice. So instead of doing what the bird was supposed to be doing, it was doing the opposite of what it was supposed to be doing because it was bringing back food for its babies at the wrong time of day. And, you know, Mao knew that it was nesting season. He knew that the birds would do that in nesting season, but Nainoa didn't know that. So he just misinterpreted the signal completely, like hmm. completely 180 degrees. So yeah, the, it, it's it's a difficult, it's a difficult kind of thing. It's not like you can just master these little bits of knowledge and set off on your canoe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and just to give people a sense of the canoes as well, because that is another point of difference um, in terms of the vessels that were used um, by the Polynesians versus the later uh, European explorers. What were the canoes made from? So they were made of wood and um, they were double hulled. They're basically a catamaran. So they're double hulled with a platform across the two hulls and then usually a little like a little house on top of that and a, and a sail and a steering oar. Um, they were not paddled. They were they were used. They, they sailed them. Um, the the interesting thing to me, one of the most interesting things to me was that there was quite a lot of documentation of canoes in the late 18th and early 19th, especially the late 18th century before European vessels and European vessel making techniques were introduced into the islands. So you, there was a little bit of evidence about how these things were made and um, they were stitched together. Um, they would have a hull and then they would, this, there would be a sideboard, like a, a freeboard that would come up on the side and that plank would be stitched to the hull with the senate, which is a coconut fiber. Um, and you know, it, it, the, the, the workmanship is incredible. There was, there is one canoe, which was collected, a tiny little fishing boat that was connect, collected by, um, a, Brit a British, um, Royal Navy, uh, captain in the late 18, uh, 1700s. And um, it's in the British Museum and it's really incredible. There are pictures of it with the stitching. You can see the stitching really well. It's quite remarkable. And in some places, you know, they didn't have a lot of wood. I mean, New Zealand, you know, is full of wood and the big islands of Hawaii and, and, and Tahiti and so forth. But in the Tuamotus, there's really no wood at all. So they're using bits and pieces, and they made these amazing canoes. They were actually said to be some of the best canoe makers in those places because they were really, really, really clever in the way that they would use small pieces of wood and put them together to make a seaworthy vessel. Mm. And one of the other elements to this story is not just how uh, did they, you know, settle on these um, different islands and and really make do with what they had in terms of the different natural situations and and resources at their disposal, but also thinking about why they set out and also why what spurred them on to um, go to such disparate and different islands and and spread out so far and wide and. Could you share with us some of the the reasons that have been proposed as to why? Yes, nobody really knows the answer to this question. I mean, I think that I thought about it a, a lot, of course, as I was going through this. And people always ask me this question. I, I, I think the way to think about this is that when you kind of understand the full scope of the this migration. It's not just the last couple of thousand years, which is the part where the Polynesian triangle itself becomes populated. But these are the descendants of a group of people known as, basically known as Austronesians. That's the language group, and that's what we call them, who came down from, 
you know, Taiwan is sort of the point at which we can we we can sort of track them back to Taiwan, say five thousand years ago or something, and they work their way down. They're they're sea people, and this is the kind of sea people of the story is that they they they're they're a, a marines culture, and they work their way down through the Philippines and into Indonesia. A branch of this group goes all the way over to Madagascar and the Indian Ocean. They work their way over Papua New Guinea, north of Papua New Guinea, through the islands there, and out into you know, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, all out into there and over towards Samoa and Tonga, which is the edge of the Polynesian Triangle. And so these people have been, you know, all of that period, while they're working their way down through this area, they're kind of developing the, the techniques that they need. They're probably developing the vessels that they need. Somebody comes up with the idea of an outrigger. Somebody comes up with the idea of double hulls. Somebody improves the sail. Somebody, you know, improves the navigational techniques. I mean, you know, it's like a gradual kind of thing. But I think they're the interesting thing is that they really are moving. They're kind of on the move for thousands of years and they keep on sort of pushing out into and, and all through when they're in those areas in the western part of Pacific, they're not alone out there. You know, th there are other people there at that point. And they're these people, these Austronesians, they're kind of living on the edges of the on the coastal, these coastal regions, maybe on the islands, off islands, you know, often. And they're. But they're just this really coastal people, the food sources they use, the kinds of ways that they do everything. They're just designed for this life at the edge of the sea and the whole culture is. And they just kind of keep on moving. And and I think also that in the beginning, you know, the island hopping that they do for a long time is the islands are intervisible. You can see the next one. And then at a certain point, they get out to the Solomon Islands. And from there, they're no longer intervisible. And they make these big leaps. And that's kind of, the, for me, the, the sort of cosmic moment, <laughs> you know, that the, the existential question is they when they start to make the really big and I think they're just explorers mm. um you know I think they're just exploring and looking and but they what's incredible is that they keep on doing it and keep on doing it and keep on doing it and that they find places like Hawaii which are just surrounded by nothing <laughs> yes and maybe we can just finish our chat on Hawaii because there is um, a great story which uh, Australians may be interested in featuring Captain James Cook and his demise uh, in Hawaii some people may not have known how um, he ended up dying uh, but it was I think a, a really interesting story that you provided Provided and it, it opened your book and set the tone, I think. So the story about Cook in Hawaii, you know, the Hawaiians don't like him at all. I mm. mean, there's a lot of reaction against Cook these days. And I'm, I'm just going to stand here and say or sit here and say that I have a huge amount of admiration for Cook because he was really was actually a great navigator. He he. He, he didn't get to Hawaii until his third voyage. And I think he was very cranky by then. I think he might have been sick. He was very ill, very bad tempered. And he got into a um, he, he things were OK at first. He, he arrived in Hawaii and he sailed around the big island looking to, for a place to bring his ship in for a rest. They had been north up looking for the Northwest Passage. And then they came down and they went around the big island. And the crazy thing that happened was this is a famous story that it was not original with me, but that he arrived, he finally came into Kealakekua Bay, which was, they were having a big festival at that time for the god Lono. And Lono was said to be a god who would travel uh, counterclockwise around the island, carrying this big stick with a white tapa on it. And it just matched too closely what Cook had been. They had seen his ship sailing and sailing around the island in the same way with its tall masts and its white sails. I mean, it was just sort of, I think it was kind of spooky. 
And so he arrived and he was received in a very, you know, with great enthusiasm. Um, and then they were there for a while and then it was time for them to go and off they went. And then just off the coast there, his one of his masts broke. And so he had to return. And really, nobody wanted him to return at that point. He had been there as the incarnation or the representative of Lono. He had been feted. He, everything had gone well. And then he came back and they were just like, what are you doing here? Um, and then things went really awry. They just went badly at that point. And he got into lots of arguments. He tried to kidnap somebody in order to get one of his boats back. And it just all went, you know, you went to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. And then he was killed in a, in a, in an, in an altercation on the, uh, in Kealakekua Bay. I, I, people have often thought that it was a very big, meaningful moment, but I've often thought that really it's, it, it was just like a lot of altercations that he was in over the course of many, many, many years in New Zealand in Tonga in Hawaii in a lot of places. And it was a dangerous business. He could have been killed in any one of those, but it just, that's where it happened was in Kealakekua Bay. And yes. the Hawaiians killed him. <laughs> yes, well, it's, you said uh, it's almost absurdly accidental and it might so easily have happened at any time. I, I do feel that way about it. I don't know that all historians feel that way about it, but um, I, I feel, having read a lot of Cook over the years, that there were a lot of moments that went wrong um, in his journeys. There were a lot of times when the British did not behave themselves in a very, you know, that when they got they killed people and they got into trouble and they just got a bit lucky that someone didn't kill them. Um, they could easily have been killed in New Zealand many times. Uh, and they just didn't get killed there. But they did in Hawaii, or he did anyway. Mm. So. And, of course, <clears throat> Australia has its own very uh, horrible history with um, Cook and also just the Brit British in general. And uh, and I know it's, a, it's still a really important um, issue for us given that we uh, still have Australia Day and that's another uh, political issue for us that's still tied up with um, colonialism and, and settlement. So um, I wonder, does it have a similar types of um, political meanings and uh, I guess tragedy and contestation in places like Hawaii? Yes, yes, in Hawaii, definitely, indefinitely. I mean, I think what happens with Cook is that Cook becomes a symbol of all that follows, um, you know, for better or for worse, in the same way that, you know, I don't know, George Washington is a symbol of whatever follows or any anybody, you know, and I, I mean, he is the he is the figurehead of this of this opening gambit of the of the colonial era and the colonial era has terrible, terrible consequences for many people. Mm. So so there's no question about that. It's just that I think of Cook as an individual, not as the not as the representative of anything in particular. I'm kind of interested in him as a as a man um, who lived at a certain moment and did a bunch of things. So so I I feel like there's a lot of symbolism attached to him, which you know I understand it totally why it's there. But 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 yes, Hawaii has very very similar Australian Hawaii and you know the Cook Islands and you know many other places in Polynesia very very similar uh, mm. take on this. Not so much in French Polynesia, but 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 in the British parts. Yes, exactly. Um, it's been so fascinating speaking with you, Christina. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us some of those fascinating stories. And uh, obviously, people can pick up the book and find out more and follow that chronological timeline that you take us through and the various islands within Polynesia that um, have their own unique story. Um, I really appreciate uh, your time and your creativity and congratulations on the literary awards that the book has received. 
Thank you very much. Those were a good, they were a real shot in the arm. They were great. Um, <laughs> and I really also appreciate your asking me to talk about it. It's a lovely distraction. Uh, we've done nothing but just refresh the news page all day long. So mm. um, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.